from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. And we're going to be talking managed security service for businesses. If you are uh, listening to us on 1200 WAA Live and you are not going to be able to stay in your car for the next hour, you'll be able to catch the replay of this up on our website at www.cybertalkradio.com on Tuesday, March 26th. It'll also be out all across the Internet on all of your favorite podcasting services. And if you would love to look at a still photo of my guest and I, you can uh, watch us on YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, no, we're not doing live video anytime soon. I do have a face for radio. So uh, I'm joined this week by Jarrett Rame, uh, and He's uh, working for a, a new company here. You've been in San Antonio for a while, but and doing managed security services for quite a while. We'll talk through all of that. But uh, wh- what's going on with you, and what got you on the radio program here with us today? Uh, sure. So I started a new role with a company called Bitdefender uh, about, about three months ago now, by the beginning of January. Um, and they hired us to build out a managed security program here in San Antonio. Um, and so we were really excited to kind of pull those folks in. They're, they're very well known in EMEA, um, but not as much in the States. And so we were really kind of excited to be able to build a new office here, start to hire folks here and, and kind of go down that path. And, you know, obviously we've known each other for a long time from uh, previous communications and, you know, the cyber world is small. Um, and so we tend to be able to, to talk to folks and be excited about getting on the radio and stuff and, and kind of get feedback from people or get contacts with people, that type of thing. So, yeah. How would folks uh, get in contact with you? We'll just dump that right out here at the start in case they're going to have to tune out. Um, so you can go to the main website. Uh, Bitdefender obviously has a consumer business, also has a, an enterprise business. Uh, if you want to get hold of me personally, you can do jraim, uh, J-R-A-I-M, at bitdefender.com, and I'll be happy to answer you. Um, I'm sure I will regret putting that on the radio, but what are you going to do? No, you're not. So if, you, if you're out um, in the San Antonio cybersecurity area and you're uh, looking to work in managed security services, uh, get in contact with Jared. They're going to be hiring and expanding uh, the office that they're setting up uh, here in town. So Bitdefender, yeah, is headquartered in uh, Romania, right? That's right. It was founded in Bucharest um, and been there for about 18 years now. Um, the majority of the staff is still out there. Um, tons of R&D folks. Bitdefender is a, a very big investor in research and development. So if you go back to you know, 2005, 2007, around the patents and the papers around machine learning for antivirus and anti-malware, all that stuff was, was mostly done out of the Bitdefender folks. Uh, most major security companies that you've heard of, right, the big enterprise guys, uh, actually use Bitdefender under the covers uh, in a lot of different ways. And so a lot of that R&D gets done out of Romania. Uh, there's now two offices in the States. They're opening the third here in San Antonio. And then there's offices all over the world for uh, for other places, London and uh, EMEA, and then some folks obviously in APAC. So. And this will be their, their first uh, foray into managed security services. Yeah, historically, they've mostly been a product company, right? So they're, you know, kind of a product and development company, software company, licensing company. Um, they obviously have a customer success group that helps folks be successful with their products, but customers mostly deliver those, those outcomes themselves. So you kind of give them the tools and they do it themselves. You know, and I think we've all seen the trend over the last couple of years of cybersecurity getting more and more complicated and the fact that it's getting harder and harder for companies, especially smaller companies that don't have the resources to build a 24-7 security operations center or go and hire a bunch of high-end security talent to really get security outcomes, right? And I think you know, Bitdefender, just like the rest of the market, looked at that and said, hey, look, we, we can't just sit around and hand people weapons anymore. Like, we need to be able to give them the the backing and the expertise to be successful. Yeah. 
Oh, it's an interesting one. So what got you interested in cybersecurity originally? Ooh, originally? Um, so I was a dev. That's my background. So I kind of started with computer science. That's what my degrees are in. Um, always, you know, I, the, the traditional story around, you know, nerdy security people. Like, I always liked taking things apart and figuring out how they worked. Um, and weirdly enough, I, I thought I was going to do the dev thing pretty much. And I ended up at a, a small company here in town called Denim Group. They're an application security consultancy. Uh, a lot of really great folks. And that's really where I did started doing security for a living. Um, some of my research when I was uh, when I did research papers at undergrad and graduate was also in security. So it was just a place that I've been playing around in. And then Denim was where I kind of decided, hey, I think I'm actually going to do this full time. And I, I got to sit under some really smart folks over there and, and kind of learn learn the ropes of the business a bit. Yeah. So you didn't like stumble across a copy of 2600 magazine or something. And uh... there was definitely some anarchics cookbooks in my past in 2600s and building things that probably would get you arrested these days. Uh, let's just say I'm glad nobody cared about cyber back when I was a kid. But, yeah. um, you know, that stuff was always fun. I, for some reason, I just never thought of doing that as a business until I kind of got uh, got to denim and kind of said, oh, like, wow, this is a thing. I like doing this. There's there's people who are going to need it. And at the end of the day, I feel good about helping people be better at this. Um, yeah. You know, that's what really drove the managed security stuff, both for my partner, Daniel Clayton, and I was always kind of saying, hey, like, we want to go build a business. We think it's very cool and, and all that pieces. But the first thing that we want to do is develop something that actually delivers value for people. Um, and then we'll we'll go make some money because that's what we have to do to be able to do the first thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there's there's still 2,600 meetups in the state of Texas. There's not one in San Antonio though. Uh, we, we here, I guess we've got the Cyber Def Dojo, uh, which is the largest cybersecurity meetup uh, I think anywhere in the country on a regular basis. Uh, if you did want to learn some more about that Cyber Def Dojo, it's uh, we've had uh, the organizers of that on the program, so you can check out iTunes or. Pocket Cast or Stitchers or any of your favorite podcasting services out there and look up CyberDef Dojo to learn more about that meetup here. It's interesting. We don't have a 2600 chapter in San Antonio with all the stuff going on here. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the commercial cybersecurity you know, group in San Antonio is really kind of on the certainly on the up, but is still relatively small. So much of the cyber talent in San Antonio has been restricted to the military or, or some yeah. of the, the three-letter agencies. And so a lot of those folks don't have the same ability to go out in public than, that the rest yeah, of us do. Or certainly not hang out at a 2600 meetup. Yes for sure so you know that's obviously changing now but the you know i think we'll see more and more of that kind of public stuff that's going to happen here in san antonio um you know especially as more and more companies move here and, and that type of thing yeah so for bitdefender you mentioned like you guys build a lot of the the background technology um explain to uh, folks out in our listening audience like uh, the cybersecurity is a gigantic word means like a whole bunch of different things uh, where are you guys focused in the market? And for uh, those listeners out there, like, what are some of the basic things they should be doing um, inside their business today? Well, it's a wide question. Yeah, uh, big so one. certainly from a Bitdefender perspective, they've historically been an antivirus, anti-malware company, right? That's That's been their bread and butter for the last 18 years. If you look at all of the third-party testing that's out there, all that kind of stuff, we're, we're still the best. So I'll, I'll get a plug-in from uh, the guys who pay the bills. Um, you know, but... They've seen, like anything else, that the the only anti-malware platform is not really sustainable from an actual defense capabilities, both even at home with your home devices, uh, as well as as businesses, for sure. And so you start to see them expanding into network visibility. And so we, we do a lot of uh, kind of what we call NTSA or network traffic uh, security and uh, analytics, which is the name of the platform. Um, and that gives you the ability to look at just metadata. So you're not actually looking at the contents of network traffic. You're just looking at, at the metadata of the traffic and kind of trying to figure out what's going on, uh, both from an adversarial perspective and, you know, just from 
talking to bad IP addresses and those types of things. Uh, and it also has a, a very large consumer business. So we have a lot of direct consumer folks that use Bitdefender at home. Um, there have been some really great products coming out there. We released Bitdefender Box a little while ago, which is a device that plugs into your home network. Um, and it does your anti-malware stuff. It comes with licenses for all your desktops and your laptops and your phones and all that type of stuff. But it also has some kind of more interesting features around things like detecting cyberbullying, um, some of these other types of, of threats that are not necessarily malware-related, but certainly as parents, there are threats that we care about. Um, and, you know, I like that, you know, as I got into the business, I spent some time with the product managers that they think about how people will actually use it. And so, for example, the, the cyberbullying piece, you can set it so that you get in an alert if cyberbullying is happening, but you never see the contents of the messages. So if you have an older kid where you're really worried about this invading their privacy kind of component, you can still kind of keep an eye on things and react if you need to, but you're not kind of invading their privacy as much. So that's where they've primarily focused. Um, you know, I think when you talk about what you should be doing for your business, um, obviously it's a very wide question that gets very tailored to individual businesses. I think what we've generally seen or what I like to talk to folks about is historically security has been very tool focused, right? RSA is going on right now, right? Everybody's looking at the brand new fancy stuff that's happening. Um, most people should not buy anything there uh, except Bitdefender, we're the best. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, just because so much of that investment in tooling without the, the understanding of how to use that tooling to be successful is not really going to be effective. And, you know, so much of security, especially as a small business or a startup, is less about spending money on security tools or spending money on security people. It's about building your standard processes to be more effective. So is your IT effective at patching, right? Can you do vulnerability management? Can you deploy six times a day, right? When you see some, a lot of the benefits around continuous delivery and some of these things that are really considered to be IT benefits or development benefits, you actually get a lot of security benefits as well. Right. Um, you know, and so, yes, you still got to do all the documentation stuff for compliance and various other things that you got to focus on. But, you know, for smaller companies, at least tech focused smaller companies, the conversation I have with them is invest in your engineering capability. If you make that better, then you get all of this extra benefit coming out on the security side. Yeah, you, One, could, you can improve velocity, which every business leader wants to figure out how to do right now. And by improving velocity, you also improve security. Yeah. And, and it's it's a backwards paradigm, mostly in other areas, if you're going faster, you usually have to be more reckless. But here, speed actually provides security. Yes, yeah, so the things, the systems and the maturity that you have to build to be good at continuous delivery gets you benefits on the security side, right? Because if you're in that, that zone and say you want to go and make an investment in a security product, right, you generally don't have enough money to go buy anything anyway, right? So much of the enterprise security products are frighteningly expensive, even, you know, especially at the smaller tiers that it just doesn't make sense to invest that money there, right? Invest that money somewhere else where you're going to get those benefits. Um, now, sometimes compliance will drive you to make decisions and, and you don't have much of a choice about that stuff, but that's usually the conversation I have with smaller folks. Now, if you're not a tech-focused startup, then tools can make a little bit more sense because you, you don't have engineers around that that's not your primary risk focus. Then you're really looking at, you know, point-of-sale systems and, and various other things. And you know, conversations I have with those folks really are first get out of all of the business that you can, right? Like let Stripe or whoever deal with your credit card processing, you know, let, you know, let these folks do that because they're going to take the risk. And so you don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, a lot of folks are looking to spend the minimum amount of money when you get into credit card processing or point of sale systems and that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, look, if you can spend a little more and offload a lot of that risk, then that's better for you in the long term because you don't have to deal with the security. So let's see. So if I'm a restaurant, good idea to have uh, one Wi-Fi network for your uh, employees and your customers? So generally, no. Um, you want to try to separate out your back end processes from things that are exposed to the public as much as possible. 
Um, and you know, with respect to kind of getting out of this business, there are plenty of folks who will come in and set all this nonsense up for you, right? And manage it for you and deal with it when it breaks and all those types of things. Cause especially now in the restaurant business, like if your network goes down, you're not making money, right? Cause your point of sale systems are all wireless and some of these other types of things. And so that becomes a business critical function. And, and so, so if your Wi-Fi is down for customers, they're often not coming back depending on what kind of restaurant you are. Yeah. If you're a coffee shop and the Wi-Fi is down, like good luck. Right. Um, I mean, that's pretty much assumed that that's going to be possible. Now, even nice restaurants have public Wi-Fi, weirdly enough. Um, so there's plenty of options of being able to deliver that stuff that have a lot of the the kind of managed capabilities built in. So you as a business owner don't have to deal with that. Yeah. So do you use public Wi-Fi? I do. Um, I also pay for a VPN connection. And so whenever I connect public Wi-Fi, I move on to VPN and kind of offload my traffic there. Um, you know, these days, most platforms are deployed over TLS. Uh, most companies are doing TLS reasonably well, at least the big folks. And so you're less worried about the types of threats that you used to see five or seven years ago. Um, but it's not a bad idea, both from a privacy perspective and from a security perspective, to use a VPN provider if you have one. Um, a lot of uh, security companies that do security stuff on iPhones, for example, Apple limits the amount of stuff you can do as a security vendor for good reason. Um, and so a lot of those folks will offer things like VPNs to kind of do that type of thing. So I know Bitdefender does. There are other companies that do as well. Um, and so those can be easy things to do. In fact, we've looked at doing that as, as part of the managed security offer is kind of allow all that traffic to be routed through kind of a, a cleaning zone, for lack of a better term, for to protect employees that are outside of your business, right? If they're traveling or, or those types of things. Yeah, because the uh, idea of a network edge these days, pretty much gone. Yeah, I mean, there is no perimeter, right? I think certainly as an enterprise or, or even a small business, you just don't, right? Like most of your employees will be working from home. They're going to be traveling. And so you really need to kind of assume that those devices will be out of your control and off your network. I think the other thing you see is most employees assume that they'll have a pretty reasonable amount of control over their work laptops, which historically wasn't true. So that kind of lock it all down, you know, stop. Look, a lot of companies still do that and more power to you if you can get away with it. But I think especially smaller companies, tech companies that are fighting for, you know, people and retention and hiring, like being the, you know, terrible IT department that doesn't let you install anything and, you know, you must use WinZip or die uh, is probably not really going to work. And so giving people that flexibility also kind of causes pain. Um, but you've seen big companies, Netflix, for example, is very much like all of their tooling is based on giving recommendations to staff. They don't force anyone to do anything. Um, I don't know if that it works well for their culture, whether it will work everywhere else is a question. But, you know, you have to assume from a threat perspective, they're going to be everywhere. They're going to be traveling. Dumb stuff will happen on those laptops. Right. So for a lot of smaller businesses, I talk to them about Chromebooks. Where yeah. it's just like, just reduce your attack service. If your folks can just use web browsers, then, you know, do a Chromebook. You can wipe the thing. The attack service is minimal, right? Obviously, they're limited from a device perspective. But for a lot of folks, they work well. Yeah, and there's many Chromebooks out there now that are 12, 16 gigs of memory, high-resolution monitor. So it's not just a two or $300 device. You can buy a super powerful computer if all you need is uh, web-based applications and access and that's part of the other problem with that the perimeter of these point every business out there is using at least some software as a service so um, if you're not using any software as a service inside your business you're likely paying more for an inferior product to host it and run it all yourself at this point because the software as a service just offers so much from a, a platform perspective and economies of scale yeah i think any business that's not looking to offload internal processes to SaaS where they can is kind of giving up likely money on the table like most of those processes and businesses that are the software that you're running, uh, that stuff's not core competency, right? Like you're not a billing company, right? You're a making widget company. So like let somebody else do billing. 
Now, those it shouldn't underestimate how difficult it can be to to adopt some of those products. Sometimes it's hard, especially the more complicated ones. You know, things like workday rollouts are amazing when done well, but they take a lot of effort. Yeah. Right. Um, and so that, but in the long run, those investments generally are worth it, and you get to offload the security problem along with with other things. So. To a certain extent, right? Your to customer, extent, your customers yes. don't care if you know your vendor got hacked; they're still going to blame you. Um, but at least you have somebody who's, you know, the vendor that you're working with. Their their business will be much more damaged than yours if they had an attack. Yeah, and ideally, they're running at the scale where they can hire and retain a security team. Yeah, that's the hope, right? Yeah, and if not, man, then they should call you, and you guys can be their security team for them. That's what we're here for. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is CyberTalk Radio, and we're talking managed security services and businesses and all sorts of other things with Jarrett Rame, uh, who is uh, founding and starting up the managed security service uh, business for Bitdefender here, um, headquartered out of the San Antonio, Texas area. The uh, whole company is headquartered uh, over in Europe. They've been around almost 20 years now and uh, done lots of great research and things in the security space, and I'm uh, pretty excited to have uh, them joining uh, our community of uh, probably a hundred or so cybersecurity companies here in the San Antonio area. It's, we were talking about some of the stuff happening over on the west side of the town in Port San Antonio and the uh, military bases nearby there. Many of the uh, companies in town servicing uh, those folks uh, do not uh, publish the fact that they're here or how many employees they have or, uh, heck, they have n- names like GSB Inc. And their website has an address and a P.O. box on it, and that's about it, maybe a phone number. Uh, so uh, it's it's one where we've got a, a great uh, security community here in the San Antonio area, uh, but uh, it's always going to be hard to get accurate stats. It definitely is. I mean, look, we've... The NSA is much more open than it used to be. Uh, that doesn't mean that they like telling everybody what's going on inside their business. And so there's always going to be a, a limited amount of, of what you can know going out. Um, but certainly lots and lots of folks in that space here in San Antonio. So. Yeah, it's it, it's interesting watching how, I mean, some of the access to information has made them more open. Like For anyone out in the listening audience, if you've just found out for the first time that the National Security Agency has an office in San Antonio, go on Google Maps, pull it up, NSA Texas, it'll show up there. You can see the aerial satellite photo. They don't try to hide this stuff anymore. They used to try to get it all blacked out and blocked, and but they've given up at this point. Now, if you call their PR desk and ask how many employees work here in San Antonio, they won't give you a, a number count. But um, there's been much more openness, and they actually even run a high school internship program over there now. They do. I mean, the NSA, like every you know agency, is struggling to hire cyber folks, right? And so you have to be more open about what's going on. You have to get involved in the educational pipeline uh, especially if you care about diversity in the pipeline, you have to get involved earlier and earlier um, to kind of pull people through that process. There's there's just no way to do it. I think if you go into the cyber world assuming you're going to be able to hire all your top-end cyber talent, like you're going to be sadly disappointed or you have an ungodly amount of money, right? Um, you have to build folks. You have to pull folks from adjacent uh, teams and technologies and areas and turn them into cyber folks. And that all requires a lot of investment and training and time. So you know, the fact that we have so many cyber folks in San Antonio certainly helps. The fact that the city is committed to helping on the education kind of side certainly helps. The fact that we have University of Texas San Antonio, which is one of the best cyber programs in the country here helps, right? So there's lots and lots of reasons that we end up here, um, but you really need to invest in that pipeline component if you wanna have any hope of maintaining at least a decent size cyber staff. Yeah, so what size company should try to build out their own team? Like, like I mean, for IT, we see many companies somewhere in the kind of uh, 25 to 100 employee range hire their first internal IT person as you get up to 250 employees, if you don't have at least one IT person working for your company, you're likely 
maybe outsourcing a little bit too much um, and maybe you even at that level you have a team depending on what kind of business it is if you're in the tech industry that's a whole separate thing asterisk that but like if you're just a regular business out there at what point do you try to build out your own security operations team that's a good question so I think we generally see three phases for folks um, and so uh, so we generally see three three phases for folks. We see folks that have basically no investment at all, i.e. it's somebody's and job, right? So whoever your IT person is, is in charge of your security as well. Um, and then we see starting to invest where you have, you know, somewhere between two to six folks. They're primarily focused on compliance is usually the driver for, for those types of hires. You may have a director or a manager in charge of it, but you don't really have a senior leader or anything like that. Uh, and then we have the kind of CISO crew where you're investing in a security team. You're starting to build that out. Um, and that team may may stay small or it may turn into a full 24-7 SOC. It may have hundreds of people, right? If you look at Target now, post-breach, right, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on cyber. They're one of the best cyber programs in the country. Um, those types of things, obviously, that there's reasons why they made those investments. But because um, yeah, it cost them hundreds of millions of dollars it, and they decided I didn't want to have that happen again. It was not it was uh, not great for them. Yeah. Um, but what was, what was interesting about Target was just that so many security people like use it as an example. When in reality, it was an example of Target actually did an OK job. They were making the same investments everybody in the space was making. They had a 24-7 SOC. They had tooling in place. Right. Um, and their tooling actually was capable of detecting the adversary in their environment. They just weren't able to get through all of the noise that the tooling generates to be able to effectively respond. And to be honest, I would have challenged any company of their size at that time period to do a much better job. Now, the response is a different story, right? But the actual kind of SOC perspective, at least from what we know about it, doesn't really seem that bad. Um, but that's really been the challenge for folks is, you know, even on the high end where, where we've seen customers invest in security operation centers, a lot of them spend a lot of that money and then they realize or they feel like they're not really any safer than they were before. They're having a lot of trouble with hiring and retention, turnovers high, costs are high, right? Um, you know, just buying a sock and spending a bunch of money with Splunk and a bunch of others just doesn't get you down the road on the security side. There's a lot of change that's made there. So when you should start thinking about it, you know, security likes to talk about being the land of risk, right? That's fundamentally our job is to make the business able to operate at an acceptable level of risk because uh, we're never going to get it to zero. So every company will have to make those decisions on their own. Um, but I think that you can get a long way today without having to really hire your own cyber talent, right? So certainly managed security services like the one we're building is part of that story. But there's like the tools have gotten a lot better. You've got platforms now like the public clouds that allow you to consume high level IT resources without, you know, or at least with limiting the amount of security problems that you have in those platforms. You have to use them correctly, obviously, which can be challenging. And it's not like public cloud uh, folks are easier to find than security folks, but um, maybe a little bit easier, maybe but, slightly. Yeah, but yeah, still not easy. Yep. Well, Rackspace made a good business out of that for uh, for a while. So you know that you know as we start to see it, I think when you start seeing hardware compliance requirements, you're going to start wanting to probably have at least one person on staff whose job it is to really keep an eye on those things. Um, partners can help you with compliance, but if you let a partner do it, you end up with this process where they come in kind of once a year. And it's a giant fire drill and you spend three months of your life struggling just to make the the compliance work and then you forget about it for nine months and then you do it again and it's super disruptive your people will hate it it's really bad from a it road mapping perspective like you know a quarter a year of your you know uh, your roadmap gets blown every year um and so having someone on staff to continuously focus on compliance can be helpful um you know i think once you start having customers start to ask you serious questions about your security platform you're probably going to need somebody who knows what they're talking about at that point point. and so if you want to go sell to 
large enterprises, if you want to go sell to enterprise uh, banks, or if you want to go sell to insurance or healthcare, you're going to need security staff relatively quickly because you're going to have to have somebody serious to sit in a room and convince those folks that they can trust you, right? Um, but if you don't, then you can get away with a lot of managed services so you just don't incur a lot of that risk. We're going to go ahead and take a quick break for a news, traffic, and weather update here at the bottom of the hour. You're listening to CyberTalk Radio on 1200 WAI. Welcome back to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran, and I'm talking with Jarrett Rame, who's uh, starting a managed security service business uh, branch of the Bitdefender company here in San Antonio, Texas right now. He's been in the cyberspace for uh, long before. We used to just call it computer and network security. But uh, So but as we headed into that bottom-of-the-hour break, if you're listening on 1200 WAI right now, uh, we were talking about what size company... Uh, you should hire and get some staff on and uh jared what are your your thoughts about uh for uh tech startups like where do they hire if you're vc or pe back as a startup or something like that there are some options where we've seen uh pe firms or vc firms that offer kind of a virtual CISO. there are some companies that offer uh, a CISO being a chief information security officer where someone that's kind of on staff but is shared between multiple companies, and so it's not quite as expensive. Uh, CISOs and CSOs are very difficult to hire and retain. They're very expensive. They turn over very quickly. Um, so as a startup, it's usually not a great investment early in your structure because it's going to take a lot of money. Uh, you They may not stick around, right? Um, and so and you just may not need them that early. So there, I've seen now a couple of startups who are focusing on being kind of the security team for tech startups, where they'll come in, they'll help you not make mistakes at the beginning of your, your platforms when you're first building everything out, they'll help you put best practices in place, and then they go away for a while. And that way, when you get big enough to really need to have these kind of conversations around compliance and various other things, then you're not starting from scratch. You're not starting from everything being broken and you have to fix everything. You're in a better place, right? So Latacora is one of those that are out there. There are a couple of others of people who are kind of focusing on that space. So, Jared, in the first half of the program as well, we were talking a little bit about training folks. You said it's like there's not a, a magic um, PEZ machine that you just go open up and pop security people out of to hire them to staff up a business. So... Uh, how do you uh, think about developing training programs? And, and I think this will be good to share with the audience so they can get some uh, context on what does it take to take someone who's a, an IT uh, help desk person and kind of get them up to security analyst or get someone who's a software developer to actually do security code auditing? That's a good question. And so, look, we've spent a lot of time thinking about this for exactly the reason you're talking about, right? If you if you want to hire level three security analysts, so security analysts in a SOC are generally graded as one, two, and three, three being the highest level. Um, you know, these types of folks, you might get a shot at hiring them 
once, twice, three times a year, maybe. I mean, that, that's about the number of bytes of the Apple you're going to get. All these folks have jobs. All of them have offers coming out their ears, right? Um, so you really have to have a strong story for them. You have to be a good place to work. You have to be willing to pay. All those things that go into hiring those folks. Um, but you're just, there just aren't that many of them. I mean, the headhunters are vicious in this space. They're going to come after your people, you know, those, those types of things. And so when you look at, at making sure that you can maintain a 24-7 capability, that means that you have to kind of design the operation for people leaving and coming in and those types of things. And so it means you have to overstaff, right? So we see people trying to do a 24-7 SOC with like eight folks or 10 folks. And it's just, you're not going to be successful doing that. Um, people get sick. They leave. They have birthdays they got to go to. I don't like using the bus analogy because it's kind of morbid. But those are the things that you have to kind of think of. And so when you look at, at the SOC that we build, we target 25 folks to, to main 24-7. Um, but that also gives you the capability to do training. Yeah. And so we'll bring folks in at a level one analyst capability who have very little security experience, who just have the desire to do it. Right. And I think to your point, if you're in the IT space, if you're in the dev space, you're there. Right. You have a lot of the base work that you're going to need, the base kind of capabilities that you're going to need. Right. At that point, it's just interest. Do you want to spend the time and are you willing to go and, and learn what you need to learn? Um, you know, we tend to see a lot of folks that come in that are really good at network security, but don't know anything about applications or OSs or vice versa, right? And so if you come in as a sysad, you're going to know a lot about maybe Linux, but maybe you don't know as much about, you know, Windows or OS X, or maybe you don't know that much about networking devices. And so you're going to have to pick up some of that capability to really be good at both. Um, you know, I think we've also seen some success. I want to give too, too many of the secrets away here, but some success in looking at adjacent fields where people are doing... Uh, analysis, but may, may not be doing analysis in cyber, right? And so yeah. they have the process, the understanding, the ability to communicate effectively when they what they're finding, the ability to do research in a you know high pressure kind of time sensitive environment, um, but they don't necessarily know anything about the technology. So there are some certification platforms for SOC analysts, um, GCIA and GCIH, and these types of folk, uh, types of tests and stuff are pretty straightforward. Um, you know, those are expensive options, but if you want to run a real SOC, then your folks should probably go through them. Um, you know, and then I think as you get your folks in, what we generally see a lot of security folks, our security operations fail is they don't plan for growing the people once you've hired them. Right. And so a lot of times it's like, oh, I hired an analyst. You're just going to be an analyst like forever. And you're going to sit in the sock forever. And it's, like, well, it's clearly not going to work. No. So I remember when we were, uh, at a previous role, one of the things we kind of really sat down and did was, you know, and, and by we, I mean, Daniel Clayton, who's my partner in crime, did all of the actual work. I'm just taking credit for it. Um, you know, designed a career path from level one analyst to CSO, right? And so understand how your folks are going to change over time and understand how you can get them there. If you've got a level three analyst, then get them experience in doing incident response, get them experience, you know, in doing cyber insurance, right? There are different aspects that they can be specialists in. And when you get to level three, that's what you generally see. You'll see a malware expert or you'll see an IR expert or you'll see an application security expert. Um, you know, and so you don't have to also sit in a sock to be a security guy, right? Application security folks generally don't sit in socks, right? Those, those are not the places where they sit, but devs who focus on application security, um, can be incredibly useful or also difficult to find. Cause you got to find someone who's a good dev and someone who's done security work. Um, and there's a, a severe lack of folks who can speak engineering, but also know security. And you see this really badly in the compliance space where it's, brutally difficult to find someone who understands compliance and who understands technology, which is what you need, right? If you just try to do what it says in the compliance regime, you are doing it wrong, right? It's all about understanding what you can get away with from a compliance perspective that enables your business, right? And so, you know, those, those types of focuses of like, oh, you're going to spend a lot of money on training, right? So our training budget for a security analyst is going to be 
three, four, five, six times what it is for other staff in uh, in the organization. Not that we're not going to invest in our other staff, but SOC analysts are just more expensive. Those tests are expensive. Training is expensive. You want to send them out to security summer camp for you know Black Hat and RSA and some of all that stuff costs a lot of money. And the fact is that they can go wherever they want, whenever they want. So you know you don't want to let them hold you up, uh, but you got to make sure that you're you're keeping them not thinking about leaving if you want to keep your retention numbers. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, the important thing, and everyone, I think, wants to grow and develop and build new skills. But, I mean, the other flip side of the coin is that the world's evolving so rapidly on the tech side that if you're not constantly training your staff, you're going to have a staff that can do security operations for last year's networks and for last year's threats and for last year's applications. I mean, it's just like as you were talking about the application software uh, engineers and, and application security engineers on the software side of stuff like with the proliferation it we used to write applications in a handful of programming languages things were written in java c plus plus c sharp dot net like there was a handful of frameworks there now and many businesses you, you may not realize but you probably have apps written in javascript and ruby and golang and rust and all i could continue and list on languages because one of the devs in your team thought you know what this is the right language to use for this thing and now you've got uh, from a security side of this if you're staffing up security experts like there's hundreds and hundreds of dependencies in, in almost every JavaScript app. There's hundreds of dependencies in every Ruby on Rails app. There's hundreds of dependencies in every uh, WordPress PHP website you put up and all the plugins and everything else. And no one person can be an expert across all those areas. And even if you have a, a broad based on the application software expertise, the, the way that each of these different programming languages and runtime interpreters handle uh, memory and handle the stack and uh, handle file access and all these sorts of things. It's all different. So it's even hard to be a generalist that can cover all the different language frameworks uh, out there at this point in time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think even basic stuff like do your security staff understand public cloud, right? It's a completely different view of how you think about it. And so much resistance we saw in the enterprise space about utilizing public cloud came down to the security teams going, oh, we don't understand this. No. Right. And it took years for them to get used to that. Right. But that means if you're going to have a SOC, you have to do it. But I think your point is is really on point is that you will never build a security operations capable of doing all the things. Right. And so we talked earlier about investing in your IT structures and how it gives you output from a security point of view. It's like, well, do you need a security team that's an expert in the internals of how Ruby works? No, not if you've got a really great engineering team that can just patch Ruby every single time it comes out. Yeah. Right. And that's a reasonable trade-off, right? You're not going to get the ability to just be a deep expert at that thing. Um, but if you can keep the, you know, the role and the delivery quick, uh, then you just are, you worry less about that because when you see vulnerabilities, you'll generally see patches pretty quickly. And then it's just how fast can you get the patches deployed, right? So many attacks we see are against known vulnerabilities. I remember one, one month in the SOC at a previous role, the number one attack that we saw was, this was in 2015 or 2016 was against a Joomla vulnerability that had been patched in 2012, right? So it, the patch had been available for four years and that was like the number one attack we saw because some people were just scanning the internet and attacking everybody, right? Um, but that's fairly common, right? That's where we see a lot of attacks and, you know, people worry about the APT. They talk about these advanced threats. They, you know, look, these guys aren't going to use advanced techniques on you. Like zero days are worth a lot of money. They're not going to burn those on you. They're going to find the easy place to get in, right? And so, you know, when you are a security leader, yeah, the number the, one thing the Ocean's Eleven crew does not break into your house to steal the pictures of your kids, or yeah. does not break into your office even if you're a doctor to take 
a thousand medical records that you have. Like the Ocean's Eleven crew, they're off like going after bigger targets and like for using a movie analogy there if you haven't watched opens 11 it's fun it's nothing to do with cyber but like they're a sophisticated criminal organization that steals from casinos which is not the easiest thing to do um so yeah you definitely you know see folks kind of focused on some of the wrong things right um and so that focus on it structures gives you the ability to kind of punch above your weight from a cyber point of view which is which is super useful so you know when you look at at bringing those folks in um you know, I think obviously we talked a lot about training. I think the other thing we talked earlier about, you know, when is a startup? Do you start to think about it? I think we see a lot of folks really struggle bringing in one security person because you're like the one guy in the office that knew something about security. Uh, and one, a lot of times those folks don't know as much about security as they, they may think they do. And two, they're very isolated. And so it's very hard for them to be happy in their role or be successful. So. Yeah. I mean, this is, I think, one that if, if you are that lone security person working for a company here in the San Antonio area, um, look up B-sides, uh, get involved and go to some of those events here. Go to the CyberDev Dojo. Go to, uh, we run a handful of different, uh, Cyber Texas Foundation runs a security conference here. There's many ways for you to get involved and get a network and uh, go to lunch with a peer of yours at another company at least once a month and, and don't sit there alone by yourself and don't just communicate with folks on the internet because you can have a different conversation with people in person at these type of events than you can have back and forth over an IRC channel or back and forth over wherever you happen to be hanging out with folks on the internet. That's the benefit to being, one of the benefits of being in San Antonio, right, is that you have other folks who are doing this, so utilize folks. Even if it's not asking questions or whatever, just being able to commiserate over a beer about the same things that we do, or not over a beer if you don't drink. Um, those are important things to have, and you know, so much time we see the, in the security world, you spend a lot of your time kind of fighting fights, and so sometimes it's nice to be able to kind of relax with folks who understand. You're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio, and uh, we're talking uh, managed security services inside of your business. Uh, how the heck do you do all of these things and uh, stay straight? If you just turned your radio on right now as you've got into your car, you can listen to the rebroadcast of this episode. It'll be up on our website Tuesday, March 26th at www.cybertalkradio.com. It'll also be out there on all of your favorite podcasting services across the Internet. And if you uh, listen to podcasts and cannot find our program on the service you use, reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter. Let us know. We will fix that, and we will get you a CyberTalk Radio T-shirt. Um, we've talked about training in this uh, last segment here but why we why should we even bother with training so all this stuff in the news everyone's talking ai machine learning shouldn't i just train the machine to do this security analyst work like i mean are people really going to be necessary here yeah it's the the fabulous buzzword right the, the old joke is like what's the buzzword at, at rsa which is one of the big security conferences going on right now and so for a lot of years it was apt and then it was deception and now it's machine learning and ai just like everything else um, look, the machine learning and AI tools are getting better, right? And we are seeing improved capabilities from things like our security analytics platforms. Uh, we're seeing new platforms like user and entity behavioral analytics that are capable of detecting kind of anomaly, anomalous behavior in environments, those types of things. And all that stuff is super valuable. Um, at the end of the day, what that generally does is it frees up the time the analyst has to spend more energy on understanding the wider picture and interacting with the business. And your AI just doesn't do that. Right. So we should continue to invest in those platforms. A lot of them are going to be great. Some of them are snake oil. Of course, that's always the nature of, of a frothy market like we've got with with AI and machine learning. Um, but we are seeing good capabilities come out of those platforms. In fact, you know, Bitdefender back in 2005, 2007, they built the first kind of machine learning based anti-malware platforms. Um, and that's partially what's still used today to, to kind of get them on the top of the you know detection lists and the, the top of the false positive lists and those types of things. So those technologies are very powerful. 
they don't replace the ability to have humans who understand what's going on, both because there's always a human element in security because you're interfacing with other parts of the business um, and there's risk-based decisions and stuff that are difficult to make automatically. Um, but two, you won't ever have full coverage from a tool perspective. You won't ever know everything that's going on, right? And so, you know, the attacker is a human just like you are and they will change their tactics, right? So we routinely see attackers who will come in, they'll try something, the tool will block them, they'll go away for a while, they'll come back, they'll try something else that gets around the tool, right? And so you'll always have a cat and mouse game in cybersecurity and so you will always need analysts. What those analysts will do hopefully will change. If we're still hand reviewing firewall logs, that's bad news today. Right, 10 years from now, hopefully we're not doing some of the stuff that we do today that takes a lot of time. So I'm excited about the platforms. I hope that they continue to evolve. Uh, but I generally uh, agree with you that they it's a it's a little frothy. Uh, you know, it's a lot of marketing and not a lot of real life. Um, and so when we see customers who are investing in these platforms, we don't ever see them get rid of staff. What They always have more security problems than they have people to solve. It's that now those people can focus on problems that are more business focused. And so a good example, we saw a lot of customers who like took on a managed security capability so that they could free their security teams up to help the business move to Azure at the time is what they were doing, right? So that was a strong business objective drawn by the, the CEO. It was important to the business from a dollar's point of view, like it was a big muscle movement and security got to be a part of that instead of being a blocker to that, right? And that was obviously good for those guys' careers, so. Yeah, I mean, I, we've had some guests on the program that are AI experts. If you want to go back and listen to, if you're out there in the audience, want to go back and listen to some more. I mean, uh, one of the ones uh, he was on uh, from a robotics company. And I mean, things that we take for granted as humans of like being able to coordinate our left and our right hand, uh, the computer vision and the robotics coordination is not even at the point right now where like you can build a juggling robot. Like you've not seen videos of juggling robots out there on the internet because i from our conversation, we didn't ask that question specifically, but it sounded like you can't even teach a robot to juggle at this point in time. Yeah, we're definitely in the, the frothy zone. I think everybody's got, you know, certainly, you know, automated cars is what everybody wants to talk about now from a machine learning perspective. And everybody has this idea that it's going to be like the magic taxi with no, per no person in it. And it's like, look, we're not going to get there anytime soon. But you're already starting to see completely automated delivery platforms in kind of known areas with known weather patterns and stuff like that. And it's like, that's still amazing. We should be happy about that, right? The fact that it's not like the, you know, Rosie the Riveter thing, like it's going to be a while. So just be okay with it. Um, and so that slow, steady, incremental improvement, as long as people continue to have money from, you know, there's plenty of VC going on in the space. And so we're seeing a lot of technology being done, then great, we'll get value out of it. Um, you just won't have that bing bang moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, for for those out there listening on this as well, the automated delivery, there's a, a couple of uh, towns in Australia where they've got drones flying and dropping packages uh, on your porch instead of having a truck drive up in front or a driver drive a van or whatever and run up to your porch and leave the package there. So you can check out some news articles online about that. We'll link one in the uh, recap to this program that goes up uh, on our website as well. Uh, so as we're going through here, uh, look, if you're going to... Uh, go back to some of our original topic on the managed security service for business um, and managed services for business. If you were going to be out and say you weren't starting one, but you're going to go hire somebody else. I mean, do you ask them what tools they're using? Like, do you ask them how they train their people? Like, you've got a chance to ask them two or three questions. What, what are the ones that are top of mind for you coming in to really assess their capabilities? It's a good question. So I think uh, Forrester did a great paper not too long ago about um, they interviewed all of the consumers of managed security service providers. Um, and these aren't MDRs, these are a little bit older uh, kind of platforms, but the, the only thing that came through that correlated with people being happy with their 
uh, with their provider was were they assigned a TAM or a, a security account manager, right? Someone who specifically owns your account, who you can get to know, who you have their cell phone number, right? That you can always get a hold of them and they're the one who, who are taking care of you is incredibly important, right? Um, and so Forrester saw it. I think we see it when we deliver stuff that it's important for us to start to understand that environment, understand the people around it. Because when there's an emergency, that trust already has to be there, right? If you're trying to figure out who the right person is to call at three o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, like you've already failed, right? And so having that in place is, is super important. Um, you know, I think it's important for customers to care about technology, but most customers, especially in the mid-market or the smaller uh, businesses, they're, they're not going to have the expertise to really parse the technology differences anyway. Every vendor is going to tell you they have the best technology on the planet. Um, you know, so are you going to spend a lot of time trying to parse that? I don't know. I, I probably wouldn't, right? I think the, the question is, well, what are the outcomes that they're actually going to guarantee for you, right? Um, what, how are they going to back up what it is that they're doing, right? And how well do they fit your environment, right? What technology platforms are you using? Do they natively support those, right? What visibility do they give you? SLAs obviously are, are part of that conversation. So, you know, certainly some customers like to, to talk tech and that's fine. We're, we're always happy to do that. Um, but I think the value of a managed security offer is that it's a business outcome driven offer, right? Our goal is to make the business be able to function with less risk, right? Your goal as a business owner is to be able to offload all that risk to me and not care about how it's getting done, right? When you interview a cleaning service, you don't ask them what cleaner they use on the floor. Like you generally don't care, right? Unless you have a very specific reason to, of course, but, um, you know, and so that's what I would focus on. Like what are the business outcomes that are going to be achieved? Document those, make sure you understand what it is that you're actually getting as a business owner and what will happen when things don't work right? Because things won't work. Things will get broken. New platforms will get introduced, right? Um, so we have customers who will get grumpy because AWS released a new product that they've told no one about and we don't support it right away. It's like, well, yeah, it actually takes us time to build up the capability to do that. Experts don't grow on trees. Um, but we do try to get involved in the betas and those types of things, of course. But, you know, and so understanding that there'll be some limitations from those platforms are also useful and make sure that you're okay with those, especially if you're a tech startup. Right, you're going to be moving fast. You want to be able to, to pull new tools, and so an MDR may or may not be a super good choice for you, depending on what type of thing that you're trying to build or or how you you want us to protect your environment. Yeah, and so in in setting up and building out a, a practice, so the managed security service provider space has been around for as long as the internet now, 20 years, and um, it used to be uh, back at the beginning, most of those managed providers would buy all their tooling uh, from other folks. How important is it uh, from your perspective that the, the managed security service provider is also the builder of their own tools? So I guess if you think about this, like if we go to the, the core data platform for a, a, an MSSP back in the days, everyone licensed technology from NetForensics and Teletactics or ArcSight. Um, hardly anybody tried to build their own security information management platform. Now there's many of these managed providers out there that have built their own platform, which is, is this matter and how are you guys thinking about it? Um, so I think there are pluses and minuses to both approaches. At a previous role, we licensed everything, right? So all the major tools that uh, that we use, we we brought from third parties and we you know did a lot of work and chose what we thought were best of breed. Uh, and then the technology that we built was to link all of those things together, right? To do all the integration work, make sure they all played nicely together to do the correlations, those types of things. Um, obviously, a Bitdefender, we already have some of the best technology in the world. It's you know validated by third parties and all that. So of course, we want to use that. Um, and there are some really great things where I can go to the product manager and be like, hey, I want this feature um, and I'm all, it's only going to be used for MDR. So I was talking with them about doing uh, some deception type things uh, using the agents that we have today. So putting files on that we could detect if an adversary touched or moved, you know, and most 
traditional EPP platforms, that's not a function for them. They would not do that. You would need a third-party tool to do that. In this case, I can say, hey, I kind of want this. Let's talk about when we can fit it into the platform. So there are certainly some benefits in doing that. Um, I think it comes down to the company a bit. The you know A lot of times when you're starting a, a services practice, what I need is a service delivery uh, you know, capability is going to be different from what a customer needs. And so you have to be able to kind of figure out how you're going to make those investments. Um, but I think the real difference you're seeing, traditional MSSP was all about the customer buying all their own tools and going out to the market, figuring out what they wanted, buying all of it, and then having a third party manage it for them. Right? I think when you look, you've now seen the rise of managed detection response or MDR. These folks are opinionated about tooling. So we bring our own tools to the fight. We don't use existing tools that are in the space. Um, and then... You know, now you're starting to see MDR started really as endpoint only. It was really kind of agents on boxes. And now you're starting to see them spread out. So we do network as part of our offer. Other folks are starting to go down that path as well. So I think you're seeing MDR as MSSP 2.0, right? I think unless you're a very large enterprise that already has huge investments in existing security platforms and you want someone to just help you with those and it's, it's not feasible to pull them out, then MSSP might still be for you, right? And there are good MSSP providers out there, right, that, that do good work. Um, from an MDR perspective, for most companies, you probably don't need to be in the business of picking security tools if you don't have a security org, right? So if you don't have the expertise to do that, you know, we had people, three, four folks who did nothing but test security tools all the time to figure out, you know, are these the right ones? And is this new tool worth spending money on, right? That'll, that level of effort most customers shouldn't be making. So letting the MDR kind of own that decision is better. And again, it goes back to that question about why are you picking MDR in the first place? Well, as a business owner, it's outcome driven. You don't care what tool I'm using. You don't care what mop I pick. You just care that the floor is clean. Well, thank you very much for joining us. If uh, you want to catch this program in full uh, or any of our other programs, uh, check out our website at www.cybertalkradio.com or look us up on your favorite podcasting service out there on the Internet. If you would like to uh, communicate with us at the program, uh, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and a submission form on our website. Thank you, Jared, for joining us. Thank you.